Welcome to another episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast, made to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. In 2008, the EFCA adopted an updated, strengthened statement of faith. Following that update, the EFCA Spiritual Heritage Committee wrote the book Evangelical Convictions, an exposition of the statement of faith of the EFCA to help pastors and church leaders better understand what we believe. On this episode of the podcast, Greg Strand reads Chapter 4 of Evangelical Convictions. Greg serves as EFCA Director of Biblical Theology and Credentialing. Article 4, Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our High Priest and Advocate. God's gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. Who is this man? No question is more central to the Gospels. After Jesus had declared a paralytic man forgiven, Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? After Jesus stilled a storm and calmed the waves, Mark recounts that his disciples were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And Matthew records that in the last week of Jesus' life, when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The critical turning point in the gospel plot hinges on this question. Near Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Then he turned and asked, But what about you? Who do you say I am? From that point on, Jesus began to head toward Jerusalem and his death. John makes answering this question of Jesus' identity his primary concern in writing his gospel. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus Christ has always been a controversial figure. However, unlike other figures in history, The controversy surrounding Jesus of Nazareth has not focused primarily on his teaching or even on his actions, but on how these point to his identity. His moral instruction has been widely acclaimed and his religious devotion almost universally admired. But the early Christians were not content with describing Jesus simply as a great moral teacher or even as a prophet of God. His words and actions compelled them to turn to the category of divinity in order to explain him. Nothing less would do. Jesus was God incarnate. In Jesus, divinity took on humanity. He was truly God and truly man. This is more than a theological proposition. It is at the heart of the gospel, for we believe that God's gospel, the good news of God's saving work, is supremely revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' identity. He is God incarnate. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man like no other. He preached the fatherhood of God, but he insisted that he was the Son who stood in a unique relationship with the Father. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He said to Mary of Magdalene after his resurrection, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Nowhere does Jesus speak of our Father, including his followers with him. The prayer which begins with those words was for them to pray. Jesus also spoke about the kingdom of God, but he stood in an unparalleled position within that kingdom. It was present through him, and one's entry into it depended on one's response to him. To inherit eternal life, to be saved, and to enter the kingdom of heaven were blessings granted only to his disciples. To the spiritually hungry, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. To those groping for illumination in life, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To those living under stress and anxiety, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. To those who feel that they can do nothing of ultimate value, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. To those who fear death, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. To those looking for spiritual direction and spiritual reality, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. Before Abraham was born, I am. As one scholar put it, his most startling revelation was himself. Jesus is like no other religious teacher in the world. John Stott presents the contrast. They are self-effacing. He is self-advancing. They point away from themselves and say, that is the truth so far as I perceive it. Follow that. Jesus says, I am the truth. Follow me. The founder of none of the ethnic religions has dared to say such a thing. A person's eternal destiny is determined by one's relationship with him. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. His demands were unlimited. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus declared that we must be willing even to hate our own life for his sake. What kind of man would so audaciously insist upon such absolute allegiance? Whereas the first Christians forbade the worship of men or of angels, Jesus commended the worship of himself. Who is this man? Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus put himself in the very place of God, and from the earliest records of the church, 
we find a picture of Jesus as divine. The Apostle Paul spoke of Jesus as the one who was in very nature God, and in whom all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. John's Gospel offers a similar view. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The first description of Christian worship from outside the church, written in about A.D. 110 by the Roman governor of Bithynia, Pliny the Younger, to the emperor Trajan, reinforces this early understanding of Jesus as divine. Speaking of the Christians, he wrote, They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a god. He also reported that the Christians refused to worship any other god. This claim that Jesus was worthy of worship is all the more astounding because it arose within a Jewish context. No group had a more fiercely monotheistic framework, and none would so violently oppose such a practice. Their opposition is seen in the Gospels themselves. When Jesus spoke in exclusive terms about God being his Father, the crowds took up stones to kill him. His words were blasphemous to their ears, for he was making himself equal with God. This offense was only intensified when the Christians claimed that this one who was divine died the degrading death of a crucified criminal. No wonder the Christian message was a stumbling block to Jews. But this message was also foolishness to the Gentiles. Not only was it ludicrous that a Savior could have been crucified, it was inconceivable that God could become incarnate. To the Greek philosophers, God was transcendent and abstract, existing high above the messiness of this material world. To think of God entering into this world of flesh was abhorrent to the Greeks. In fact, it was from this philosophical perspective that one of the most significant early attacks on Christian teaching arose. Arius, a popular 4th century pastor in Alexandria, Egypt, gave Jesus as the Son of God an exalted status, even ascribing to him a form of divinity. But he was convinced that Jesus was not truly equal with God. Arius believed that the Son of God had a beginning in time, even if it was at the beginning of time, while God the Father was eternal. Arius was an engaging speaker who used certain passages of the Bible to support his view, and a fierce conflict ensued. As it developed, the dispute centered on just one letter, an iota, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. One side argued that the relationship of the Son of God with the Father could be described by the Greek word homoiousios, which meant he was of like substance or being with the Father. That is, he was semi-divine. The opposition, however, insisted that only the word homoousios would do, a term which meant that Jesus was of the same substance with the Father, the very same divine being, that is, he was fully God. 
The battle raged in the church for decades. The leading defender of Jesus' full divinity, Athanasius, was exiled no fewer than five times for holding to his position. But in the end, the truth of his view was recognized, and what we today call the Nicene Creed embodies the conviction that Jesus, the Son of God, was very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. This description best captures what is expressed in the words of both Jesus and the New Testament writers. Why does it matter? But why was the argument over the iota so important? Why does it matter if Jesus is truly divine or not? Isn't it enough to speak of Jesus simply as a divinely inspired man, a prophetic figure, almost godlike in his character and teaching? The church, based on the authority of the Bible, has said, no, it is not enough. First, only if Jesus is divine can he be a full and complete revelation of God. If Jesus is not God, then how can he be God's final word, supremely revealing God to us? As Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If Jesus is not God, how can he declare that only those who hear and obey his words will enter the kingdom of God? And if Jesus is not God, then can we truly say, as Paul does, that God's love is demonstrated to us when Jesus died on the cross? Jesus reveals God personally only if he is fully divine. Second, if Jesus is not God himself come to us, the redemption he brings is powerless to forgive and to save. It is God we have offended. Only he can take away our sin. Unless Jesus is divine, his death is irrelevant to our moral status before God. We would be left to ourselves to justify ourselves. Only God can save us, for the Lord says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Jesus must be a divine Savior, or he could not save at all. Because Jesus Christ is fully God, he deserves our devotion, and he is worthy of our worship. But if he were not divine, then such worship would be nothing less than blasphemous. Jesus Christ is fully man. Jesus Christ is fully God, but we affirm equally that Jesus Christ is also fully man. Though that seems obvious to most, in fact, the first Christological heresy in the early church concerned this very issue. Among a group called the Gnostics, some held to a view known as Docetism, a term derived from the Greek word which means to seem or appear. In their teaching, Jesus only seemed or appeared to be a human. In one common form of this belief, the Christ was a divine person who came upon the man, Jesus, at his baptism and then left him immediately before the crucifixion. This view was condemned in the New Testament itself, as John writes, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. During the next two centuries, the church wrestled with its understanding of how the biblical teaching about Jesus could be rightly understood and articulated. Various views were tested and then rejected. 
One position proposed by Apollinarius, the bishop of Laodicea, was that in Jesus Christ God lived in a human body but without a human nature. In support of this viewpoint, Apollinarius and his followers cited John 1.14, the Word became flesh. Their narrow interpretation of this text led to the belief that at the Incarnation, the Divine Word, the Logos, displaced the animating and rational soul of the human Jesus. Only his physical body was human. After substantial debate, the Council of Constantinople in AD 381 condemned the Apollinarians. The bishops affirmed, in harmony with the Bible, that Jesus was a human being in a real and complete sense with all the qualities that constitute true humanity. One person in two natures. But how could Jesus Christ be both fully human and fully divine? This is certainly a great mystery. After the rejection of the teaching of Apollinarius, a popular preacher in Antioch and later Archbishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, died about 451, suggested a model in which Christ the divine Logos was joined to the man Jesus. However, this view seemed to assert that Christ consisted of two persons instead of just one. Another model, which came to be known as monophysitism, came through Eutychus, who died in 454, the spiritual leader of a monastery near Constantinople. Eutychus taught that Christ had only one nature, in which the human appeared completely absorbed by the divine, just as a drop of honey, which falls into the sea, dissolves in it. This view blurred Jesus' humanity, creating a confused amalgamation of the two. Through these debates, the early church sought to do justice to the picture of Jesus found in the Gospels. Finally, an acceptable formulation emerged from the work of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The Chalcedonian Creed declared that at the Incarnation, the eternal Son of God, that divine person, joined his divine nature with human nature to become the God-man Jesus Christ. Only in the Incarnation did the collection of qualities that constitute human nature become realized in this divine person as Jesus of Nazareth. In the language of the Chalcedonian Creed, we all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, the distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. Jesus Christ is thus one person in whom two distinct natures are united. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. He is fully and completely both at the same time, showing us the true nature of each. He is not some mixture of humanity and divinity creating a third kind of being, like a horse and a donkey becoming a mule. The Son of God remained God. He never gave up being God. But he added to his divinity real humanity. As God incarnate, the divine subject made real human experience his own. And since the incarnation, the Son of God will forever be human. 
Against Arius, the Chalcedonian Creed asserts that Jesus was truly God. Against Apollinarius, it asserts that he was truly man. Against Eutychus, it asserts that Jesus' deity and humanity were not changed into something else. And against Nestorius, the creed asserts that Jesus was not divided, but was one person, and in this one person are two distinct natures, which are divine and human in all their fullness. Why does it matter? Why is the true humanity of Jesus so important? Most of all, because our salvation depends on it. The humanity of Jesus is an essential element of the gospel message. The epistle to the Hebrews speaks to this issue. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The humanity of Christ is also central to Paul's arguments that Jesus has overturned the work of Adam. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Only as God did Christ have the power to bear our sins and conquer them, but only as man was he qualified to do so. This understanding was the driving theological force which led the early church to press so hard against those like the Docetists and the Apollinarians who denied Christ's full humanity. As the early church father Irenaeus put it, he became like us so that we might become like him. In Christ, God was acting to reconcile the world to himself. And at the same time, as a real human being just like us, Jesus Christ could truly serve as our representative before God. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Conceived through the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. The divine human character of Jesus Christ is exhibited from the beginning of his earthly life through his miraculous conception. After the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she would bear a son, she asked, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Our statement affirms this fact of Jesus' birth to a virgin, an affirmation that was embedded in early Christian confessions. To many in our day, such a miracle of conception is too difficult to accept, but it was scandalous even in the first century, particularly in its Jewish context. The Jews had no sympathy for the myths of the Greeks, nor for the immoral sexual activity of their gods. Moreover, in a culture extremely sensitive to sexual propriety, the virgin birth of Jesus, as it is portrayed in the Gospels, is simply not the kind of story that the early Christians would have made up. From the earliest days, stories were circulating about the illegitimacy of the birth of Jesus, and the Christians would have been foolish to throw fuel on the fire by preserving a story such as this. It was undoubtedly considered true and important in understanding who Jesus was. 
Certainly, the virgin birth points to Jesus' origin as one who comes from God. He is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, the light of God descending into the darkness of this world. Throughout the gospel accounts, we find this emphasis on the divine initiative. Jesus was not the ideal man who reached up to God. He was God incarnate, God reaching down to man. God graciously entered into human affairs to accomplish his good purposes. That is the picture the Bible offers us, a picture that the virgin birth vividly displays. The virgin birth also points to Jesus' conception as a new act of creation by God. Unlike pagan stories, the Gospels avoid all sexual imagery, nor do they depict the Holy Spirit as the male partner in some celestial marriage. The picture here is not one of marriage, but of creation. For the Holy Spirit, who would overshadow Mary, was the same Holy Spirit who moved over the face of the deep in the Genesis account of the creation of the cosmos. He acted as God's agent when he first made the world. Thus, the virgin birth represents a new act of God within the natural order, creating nothing less than a new Adam, one untainted by sin. Jesus was not, however, the creation from another world transplanted into ours. The virgin birth speaks of a new creation within a human womb. Jesus experienced all of human existence from conception to death, from life's beginning to its end. Jesus' origin was with God, but the virgin birth speaks of his coming as a new creation within the order of this world, as God creates afresh the image of God in man. Finally, the virgin birth points us ultimately to Jesus' identity as the divine Son of God. Jesus did not become God's Son simply because he was born without a human father. The divine person who became Jesus of Nazareth existed in relationship with God the Father from all eternity. He was God's own Son who became Emmanuel, God with us. The Creator became a creature. The Word became flesh. The Judge became the one who is judged, thus reconciling humanity to himself. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. Just as a word finds its meaning only in the context of a sentence and then a paragraph, so a human life finds its meaning only within the context of the social and historical setting in which it is lived. For Jesus, that setting was clearly first-century Palestinian Judaism and the biblical story of the nation of Israel. For the God who is incarnate in Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From the early second century onwards, attempts have been made to sever Jesus from his Jewish roots. The Gnostic Marcion, for example, who came to Rome in A.D. 140, embraced Jesus but rejected the Old Testament. Marcion claimed that Jesus had abolished the law and the prophets. He recognized only Paul's epistles and an edited version of Luke's gospel as authoritative scripture. This foreign context in which to understand Jesus, including his distinction between the inferior God of the Old Testament and the unknown God and Father of Christ, 
led to a gross distortion of the gospel, and the Marcionites were rejected as heretical. In the infancy narrative of Luke's gospel, the angel described the son who was to be born of Mary in terms of the Old Testament promises. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Mary's song of praise exalted the Lord who had brought about this upcoming birth, saying, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Matthew connects Jesus to the story of Israel most clearly of all the gospel writers. His opening genealogy begins with Abraham, the father of Israel, and emphasizes Israel's greatest leader, King David, and the most tragic event of Israel's history, the exile to Babylon. This national history finds its culmination in the birth of Jesus. Mary's husband Joseph is described as a son of David. And the Magi declare Jesus to be king of the Jews. Matthew repeatedly shows how the events in Jesus' life took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophets. Most notably, Matthew uses a passage from Hosea that originally referred to the nation of Israel to point to Jesus. Jesus, in going to Egypt and then returning to Galilee, was recapitulating the experience of the nation. This theme is picked up again in the temptation narrative of Matthew 4. Jesus, as the Son of God, is faithful when tested in the wilderness, whereas Israel was not. Matthew's gospel affirms that Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And when Jesus dies, it is as the King of the Jews. Paul also understood Jesus as heir to the promises of the Old Testament. In introducing Jesus in his opening words in his letter to the Romans, Paul speaks of him as one who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. The Apostles' central gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection was according to the Scriptures. He taught that the promise to Abraham to bring blessing through his descendants to all nations was now fulfilled in Christ. If you belong to Christ, Paul wrote to the Galatians, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, he declared. Jesus' life and ministry cannot be understood rightly apart from the Old Testament story, and particularly the promises of God to his people Israel. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus said, and from the one faithful Jew, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, that salvation goes out to the whole world. The first followers of Jesus understood him in the light of the Old Testament story. But it is equally true that they could not understand that Old Testament story rightly apart from him. Certainly difficult issues remained regarding the continuity and discontinuity of God's purposes for Israel moving into the church age. But the first Christians understood the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to be the hermeneutical key, the lens of understanding through which to view the whole Bible. The Epistle to the Hebrews is an extended exposition of this theme. After the coming of the Messiah, the message of the Old Testament was seen in terms of its fulfillment in Christ. Through Jesus, the various institutions of Israel, 
the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, take on new meaning, pointing forward to Christ. All are seen as only a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities themselves, a conviction expressed also by Paul. Even the law itself had a prophetic function, pointing to the filial relationship of faithful love now embodied in Jesus. He is the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What was the source of this hermeneutical revolution in the early disciples' understanding of the Scriptures? Who was the creative genius behind this fresh approach? The Gospels point to none other than Jesus himself. During his ministry, he declared that Moses wrote about him and that Abraham longed to see his day. Jesus spoke of himself as the temple, the manna from heaven, the living water, and the true vine. Old Testament images given new meaning in him and by him. And after his resurrection with the two men on the road to Emmaus, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. To his disciples, Jesus said, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Although Christians recognize two testaments, they embrace one Bible, with Jesus as Israel's promised Messiah being the key that holds them together. Jesus' life. From considering Jesus' identity, we move to a few aspects of his life that are central to the gospel message. The gospel is not a code of ethics or a philosophy of life, much less a myth or legend. The Christian message is essentially a declaration of the saving acts of God in history as he has come into our world personally in Jesus Christ. Here we highlight four aspects of that historical revelation in Christ, with a fuller exposition of their meaning reserved for Article 5. Jesus lived without sin. In the second half of his prophecy, Isaiah speaks in glorious terms of the servant of the Lord. The first time the expression occurs, the identification with Israel is explicit. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. We learn that the mission of this servant is to bring God's justice to the nations. He is to be a light for the Gentiles to open blind eyes, and to rescue those captive to their oppressors. He brings light, liberty, and life. But as the prophet unfolds his vision of the Lord's servant, something disturbing emerges. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send, the Lord asks. The servant, who was to set forth a vision of God and his glory, is himself blind to who God is. The messenger who was to proclaim the word of God is himself deaf to that word. This handicap is not accidental but intentional, for the servant is not innocent but culpable. 
He has seen much, but has closed his eyes to it. He has been told great things, but has stopped his ears to them. The servant himself is blind and deaf to the things of God. He has failed in his mission. And instead of liberating those in bondage, the Israelites were themselves captives. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Israel was called by God to be a blessing to the Gentiles. She was given the law of God and was to display his holiness and righteousness. But in her own sinfulness, Israel had become just like all the other nations. She was just as blind and deaf as they were. This is the paradox, the mystery of Isaiah's figure of the servant. Though clearly identified with Israel in some places, Israel in its present state was clearly unfit to fulfill the servant's mission. Israel's problem, and the problem of all humanity, was her sin. The prophet's vision of the servant, however, points forward to one who would suffer, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. The New Testament presents Jesus as one perfectly qualified to fulfill this exalted role of the suffering servant. Jesus is that light of the world who always lived in faithful obedience to his Father. He committed no sin, Peter affirms of Jesus, enabling him to die for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. John makes the same connection. You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. As does Paul. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In contrast to the transgression of the first Adam, it was Jesus' act of obedience that enabled many to be made righteous. The epistle to the Hebrews speaks of Jesus' sinlessness as his supreme qualification to serve as our great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. His offering of himself to God was unblemished, for unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, for he is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Here I am, he said, I have come to do your will. Jesus lived a sinless life, and he himself said, I always do what pleases the Father. As a result, he was perfectly qualified to save us. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We will expound the meaning of the crucifixion in the next chapter, but here we emphasize its reality. 
Contrary to the common understanding of the Quran, Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified and died. This was a real historical event located in space and time by the reference to Pontius Pilate, who served as the governor of the Roman province of Judea during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Why is the fact of Jesus' horrible death given such prominence in a statement of Christian belief? Jesus identified himself as God's servant, but he also knew that the role entailed suffering. He was to be a suffering servant, a crucified Messiah. To his disciples, this was unthinkable. Peter rebuked him when he first spoke openly of his coming fate. But such a fate was a part of God's perfect plan revealed in his word. How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Jesus said to the confused men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus went to his death in obedience to the will of his Father. Suffering was essential to his role as Messiah. He was, in effect, born to die. Jesus' death was according to the scriptures, Paul declared. In proclaiming this, the apostle claimed that he was saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Peter also came to this understanding. He preached on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was handed over to be killed by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Peter believed that the prophets themselves searched intently to understand what the Spirit of Christ in them meant when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus' suffering unto death is the fitting means to bring many sons to glory, fulfilling the intent of the institution of the temple. It was an offering to God that atoned for the sins of the people. Jesus' death on a cross is not incidental to the Christian message. It is essential. Paul considers it as of first importance, part of the core of the gospel. To the Corinthians he said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Describing the message he preached to the Gentiles, Paul declared, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Jesus arose bodily from the dead. The crucifixion of Jesus is central to the gospel, but if Jesus had remained in the grave, there would have been no gospel at all. When Jesus was arrested and then executed by the religious and political powers of the day, his disciples fled in fear for their lives. Peter, their bold leader, denied even knowing Jesus to a lowly servant girl. After Jesus' execution, his followers were disconcerted, discouraged, and demoralized. All seemed lost. But on the third day, their despair turned to great joy. Jesus was raised from the grave in an act of divine power, and he appeared to them in bodily form. It was an unusual body, to be sure, but he was no ghost. The tomb was empty. 
He appeared at various times and places to various people, including a group of over 500 at one time, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. The same Jesus who died was raised to new life, a new kind of life. This was no mere resuscitation leading once more to death, as was the case with Lazarus. It was resurrection, a life now immune from death. Jesus had conquered death and now existed in a new, incorruptible form, a glorified body never to die again. The Son of God was forever united to humanity in this new bodily form. The existence of the Christian church is inexplicable apart from the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Nothing else can explain the transformation of the disciples and their message of victory over sin and death to be found in Jesus Christ. The resurrection was the divine vindication of the person and work of Jesus as God's Messiah. The verdict of the human court was overturned by a higher authority. As Paul writes, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Without the resurrection, there simply is no good news. If Christ has not been raised, Paul writes, our preaching is useless, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. But Christ has been raised. The scriptures had declared that the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory. God's Holy One was not abandoned to the grave. Let all Israel be assured of this, Peter declared. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. The vindication of Jesus did not end with his resurrection from the grave. He was also exalted to the place of highest honor at the right hand of the Father. After appearing to his disciples in various contexts over a period of 40 days, Jesus was visibly taken from his disciples in a cloud, a symbol of the divine presence, as a dramatic display of his new status and new home. This ascension to heavenly glory is also called Jesus' session, for having gone into heaven, Jesus is said to have taken his seat at the Father's right hand. Beginning with Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the early Christians saw in David's words in Psalm 110.1 a description of Jesus' fate. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This psalm became the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand is significant for several reasons. First, it signifies that Jesus shares in the kingly rule of his Father as Lord of heaven and earth, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. In the words of J.I. Packer, he sits at the Father's right hand, not to rest, but to rule, 
The picture is not of inactivity, but of authority. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place, and has been given the name that is above every name. He is Lord. As the Lamb upon the throne, He is worthy of all worship, and He has been appointed as the Judge of all. Whereas angels stand or fall down in worship in God's presence, the exalted Son sits. Second, the ascension of Jesus results in His sending the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter spoke of this. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus was going away, but he was not abandoning his disciples. He would be present with them through the Spirit, whom he would send from the Father. Finally, as is specifically mentioned in our statement, Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand points to his role as our great high priest. In contrast to the priests of the Old Covenant who stood in the temple offering the same sacrifices day after day and which could never take away sins, Jesus, as our high priest, offered for all time one sacrifice for sin and sat down at the right hand of God. He had completed the task. His earthly work was done, for he had offered a sacrifice of permanent efficacy. More than that, he lives forever to be our continual advocate with the Father, exercising a perpetual priestly role. He is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. The heavenly vindication of Jesus at the right hand of the Father will be joined to an earthly recognition of his exalted status when he comes again in glory. Conclusion God's gospel is made known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the definitive and final revelation of the saving grace of God in the world. Our next chapter concerns the work of Christ, which cannot be separated from his person. Jesus Christ can do what he does only because he is who he is. God incarnate, fully God and fully man, Israel's promised Messiah.